Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This is your invitation to a masterclass in engineering and design. Your ticket to go from zero to 60 with the Lexus Performance Line. A feeling this dynamic is invite only. Fortunately, you're invited. Experience the exhilaration of the Lexus Performance Line and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now through April 1st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. The English writer G.K. Chesterton once said that America is the only nation in the world that is founded on a creed. That creed is set forth in the Declaration of Independence. Perhaps the only piece of practical politics that is also theoretical politics and also great literature. It enunciates that all men are equal in their claim to justice. The governments exist to give them that justice. He went on to say that while France is French and England is English, America is united not by an ancient history or by ethnic identity, but by a public agreement about the right of every human being to live in a free society, or to phrase it as the Founding Fathers did. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We've all heard this line from the Declaration of Independence so many times that it's lost some of its power but in the history of human civilizations, this really was, and remains, a huge deal. This idea of founding a society on so-called human rights in a public creed was a bizarre and idealistic, almost naive thing to do. But it remains the bedrock of our society. When the Founding Fathers began adding amendments to the U.S. Constitution to help secure those rights and safeguard that free society, the first thing they focused on was the most fundamental, free speech. Back in Europe, criticizing your government could get you fined, imprisoned, and killed. But how can you pursue life, liberty, and happiness if someone else is controlling what you say? How can you have a truly democratic republic without free speech. You can't. So the First Amendment of the many amendments to the U.S. Constitution was basically this. Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or of the right of the people to petition the government. But this kind of freedom is easy on the general population and hard on the people who govern it. And within a few short years, these same American founders were attempting to undermine the First Amendment. In 1791, when they wrote the amendment, they still felt like rebels. A few short years later, that had officially become the man, with gigantic targets on their backs. 
So in 1798, they effectively repealed the right to free speech with the Sedition Act, with criminalized criticism of the government. Our friend Charles Slack has written a book about this pivotal moment in American history called Liberty's First Crisis, and we've invited him back onto the podcast to discuss it. Welcome back, Charlie. How did you first become interested in this? As a writer, I've always cherished the First Amendment above all the others on the Bill of Rights. It's not only central to what I do for a living, it's also a source of immense pride to me personally to live in a country that holds up free speech as a fundamental right. And I think going back to when I was a child, I had been vaguely aware of this time early in our history where just very recently after passing the Bill of Rights, that same generation passed a law making it essentially illegal to criticize the government. That seemed like an amazing contradiction. And that sort of uh, bounced around in my head for many years. And then I started looking into what could have been going on back then, what could have gone through their minds, why did they decide to pass this law called the Sedition Act, what happened, who were the characters involved. And then the more I started to look into it and read and research, the more fascinated I became. The word sedition basically just means to do and say things that rebel against authority. The Sedition Act of 1798 was a law that criminalized public criticism of U.S. government officials and policies. Charlie, what was the crisis that prompted this violation of the First Amendment so early in American history? And who was responsible for it? The central issue in 1798 was... The country had been recently founded. They passed this Bill of Rights in, uh, seven years earlier, which guaranteed freedoms for all Americans, free speech, due process, and, and so forth. It was easy for Americans to all get behind those during the revolutionary days when the British were the controlling authorities. Yes, we want freedom and independence from England. But when Americans started to run their own country and started to take positions of political power and become president, they realized that it was a whole different ballgame and getting criticized and lambasted in the press was something they didn't like very much. So some of the very founders who had been most outspoken on free speech turned around and said, you know what? Free speech is dangerous. And John Adams was the president. He represented the Federalist Party. They didn't even really call themselves a party. The Federalists consider themselves the United States. They were the English-descended sons of liberty, and they were the wise leaders. And Adams was getting picked apart as president by critics who loosely became known as the Democrats, the Democratic Republicans, these sort of outliers, this opposition party, which began to swell. And they were going after him on a daily basis and calling him terrible things, making it very difficult for him to govern. He and the Federalist-controlled Congress got tired of that, and they passed a bill known as the Sedition Act of 1798 that imposed $2,000 fines or two years in prison for essentially making the government look bad. It may surprise you to know 
that many of your favorite founding fathers supported the Sedition Act of 1798, but it's much less surprising when you understand what was happening in the world at the time. People like George Washington and Alexander Hamilton were watching the reign of terror in France, in which more than 16,000 people were executed, including the king and his wife, Marie Antoinette. And they were frankly terrified that America might descend into the same anarchy, the same government that supported the American Revolution was the one being overthrown in France. And all of these men lost personal friends to mob violence. The Duc de la Rochefoucauld, one of the most passionate French supporters of the American Revolution and a personal translator for Ben Franklin, was stoned to death for his support of the French monarchy. The great Marquis de Lafayette, who commanded American troops throughout the American Revolution, was forced to flee France before being captured and imprisoned in Austria. It's easy to romanticize the French Revolution, but it was an ugly, brutal era. Things escalated quickly, from open criticism to open war on the establishment. Mobs of Republicans literally hunted officials and aristocrats, and just about every form of authority was in danger. Even Christian nuns were lined up and beheaded one after another for their association with the Roman Church. In short, the French Revolution was an absolute horror show, and even at a distance of 4,000 miles, American officials had reason to be scared. The Federalists, as I say, were the old guard. They saw themselves as the caretakers of the country, if you will. They saw France going through its own revolution as a, a terrible danger and a threat because you had a populist uprising and uh, heads rolling and guillotines and, and, and so forth. So they saw the principal danger to the United States as coming from France, of that French-infused idea of populist uprisings. Now, on the other side, you had Americans tended to be the, this Republican Party that held with France. They believed that France stood for liberty. They stood for the power of the people and decentralized power and anti-monarchy. They tossed off the monarchy. A lot of Americans were fearful that the Federalists would start imposing a monarchy. So the Republicans were equally convinced that the French were the model to emulate, and they didn't want a monarchy on our shores. So now you had two sides equally convinced that they stood for the salvation of the Republic while the other side stood for a disaster. We might say that the Federalists sided with old France, the France that had supported them during the Revolution, and the Republicans, led by people like Thomas Jefferson and James Madison, sided with New France and the People's Revolution. And as terrified as the Federalists were of anti-authoritarian anarchy, the Republicans were equally fearful of a new monarchy being established in the United States government, which at that time was a real possibility. Powerful early players like Alexander Hamilton wanted as strong as a federal government as possible, even if that meant having something like an American king. 
Hamilton is an amazing character and was a great figure in American history. He was an immigrant himself to the United States, but ironically, he became one of the great symbols of the Federalist Party in the sense that he wanted a strong government. He believed he wanted a president appointed for life. He wanted senates appointed for life, essentially as close as you could get to having a king as you could get without actually calling them a king, because he believed in the necessity of a strong government. The, the two things that the early Americans feared was, on the one side, you feared that the rabble was going to destroy, that it, the mob was going to rise up and destroy the country. And so Hamilton came down on the, the big government side. He put in place the, the building blocks for what became the greatest economy in the history of the world. So he, he wasn't a bad guy and he was a great thinker and the Federalist Papers are, are wonderful. But in this case, I think he had a blind spot. I think that he had little faith in the ability of average people to govern themselves. Part of the way that people govern themselves is through exercising their free speech and freely criticizing their elected officials. In the earliest years of American history, this meant holding people like George Washington and John Adams accountable through the press and public demonstrations. And make no mistake, these critics were not necessarily heroes. They could be slanderous, vengeful jerks. And John Adams and his fellow Federalists were not crazy to fear for a sudden end to the young American political experiment. It made perfect sense in their minds that mob criticism might eventually spill over into mob violence and mob rule. They were reading about this very thing every day from the other side of the world. So the the Federalist government passed this law called the Sedition Act, and the principal people they were going after was opposition politicians and critical journalists. Those were, I think, the two targets they had most in mind. And among those, one was a a guy named Matthew Lyon. He'd come over from Ireland at about the age 14. He'd made his way up to Vermont, where he'd fought in the Revolutionary War, fought with the Green Mountain Boys, built a fortune up there in the mountains, and got himself elected to Congress. Now, this was a great affront to the Federalists, who thought that immigrants really had their place in the country doing more menial tasks than serving in in Congress. And Matthew Lyon was, he's a wonderful character, but loud, abrasive, never backed down from anyone. Matthew Lyon was a skilled talker who brought a street fighter's mentality to the world of politics. His real problems often began when he stopped talking and started expressing himself in other ways like the time when he violently pulled the hair of a political opponent and tried to kick him, or the time he spit in the face of a fellow congressman while Congress was still in session. And so there was sparks right from the start. Among the chief journalist targets of the Sedition Act, one was a a man named Benjamin Franklin Bache, who was Benjamin Franklin's grandson and who ran a newspaper called The Aurora, And Benjamin Franklin Bache had in his character that 
as soon as someone became powerful, he didn't like him. And so he had liked Washington. And then when Washington became president, he started accusing Washington of being a royalist with his white carriage and horses. And then when Adams became president, he began accusing John Adams of being a royalist who would wanted to go to war with France and wanted to be king and so forth and was criticizing him on a daily basis. So those were two of the main characters that the Sedition Act was aimed at. Another journalist who made a career out of harassing and exposing the powerful was a man named James Thompson Callender. He was the journalist who uh, exposed Alexander Hamilton's extramarital affair. He criticized Adams mercilessly, and he was another target. Interestingly, when the roles reversed and Thomas Jefferson later became president. Calendar was the first one to expose, to write about Jefferson's affair with one of his slaves. One of the fascinating characters uh, to me was a guy named Luther Baldwin, who was not a politician. He was not a journalist. He was a waterman. He owned a boat and he ferried people across and carried cargo and, and so forth. And he was out one day when John Adams was passing through with Abigail on their way back to Massachusetts in a carriage. Luther and a couple of buddies had been out drinking. And when the carriage came through, some Adams supporters set off a ceremonial cannon fire in salute of the president. And someone said, they're shooting at his ass. And Luther said, I don't care if they shoot through his ass. And the tavern owner, they were standing outside on the street and the tavern owner heard that and said, that's sedition because this sedition law had just been passed. And for that, Luther Baldwin wound up being hounded for the better part of a year, ultimately convicted. I don't think he spent time in jail, but he was fined. And so to me, Luther has always been written off as the comic relief of the Sedition Act story because he wasn't a thinker, he wasn't a politician, and it, and it was a humorous event, what he said and everything. But to me, it was really illustrative of the dangers of laws like this, showing how quickly and how deeply the icy fingers of the law can reach down into society and touch all of our lives. In the end, it was the relentlessness and often unfounded trolling of media players like Benjamin Franklin Bosch that ultimately drove the Federalists to restrict free speech and violate the First Amendment of the Constitution. And one of the sad ironies of the Sedition Act was seeing good men like Adams, who had been an outspoken champion of free speech throughout his life, buckle under the pressure of public criticism. Hometown History is brought to you by the Stuck at Home podcast. Since I've been stuck at home, I don't know about you, but I have finished Netflix. Every possible documentary or show that's on there, I've now watched, and there is nothing left. This is why I've started listening to the Stuck at Home podcast. Join hosts Jason and Cliff as they talk about what they're watching, reading, playing, while they're stuck at home. Cliff is a screenwriter known for Entourage and the Oscar-nominated movie Warrior. And Jason is the CEO of Starburns Audio. If you enjoy shows with lots of jokes and talks about life, then this is the podcast for you. Go anywhere that you stream podcasts to listen. New episodes drop every Wednesday and Friday. You can also go to the Starburns Audio YouTube channel. 
to watch the video version of each episode. Again, that's the Stuck at Home podcast and the Starburns Audio YouTube channel. Hometown History is also brought to you by Stereo. Do you ever realize after this podcast is finished that you wish you could have contributed your knowledge on the subject or maybe even ask questions? Well, three times a week, we are live exclusively on the Stereo app. You can come join and talk to us directly on the app. As I said, this is happening exclusively on the Stereo app. So take out your smartphone right now, open a browser, and go to Stereo.com slash Hometown History. Create your avatar, then follow at Hometown History. Join us three times each week to discuss history and other topics that interest us. That's Stereo.com slash Hometown History. It will prompt you to download the Stereo app and then follow at Hometown History. There's also a link in the show notes. I'll see you there. A detective came and knocked on the door, and I said, is it Renee? And he just gave me that solemn look. It was the worst day ever. The Proof Podcast is back with a new case and a new season. 23 years ago, 18-year-old Renee Ramos went missing. Her body was later found in an empty Home Depot building on the edge of town. I don't think that they arrested the right people. It's about time somebody's trying to do something. She had a black eye about two weeks before she was murdered. They are involved. They definitely had her body and her backpack. You know people are going to judge you, right? Of course. They're judging me now. They've been judging me damn near my whole life. You can listen now to season two of Proof, wherever you get your podcasts. And follow along with us as we reinvestigate the murder at the warehouse. I have to ask, did you kill Renee? Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. John Adams is, I, I see him as a tragic figure because it, in the context of the Sedition Act and free speech, because of all the founders, he was probably the most eloquent on the subject of free speech. In fact, wrote as a younger man about the importance, don't let the powerful tell you what you can and can't say. And he said that the jaws of power will always be there to clamp down on you. And then when he became president and he's 63 years old and being besieged on every side, you know what? Free speech, not so much. And he signs the Sedition Act. And it doesn't mean he, he, he was still a great, figure and a great thinker but boy that was i think his worst moment because he betrayed this sort of beautiful soul that he had been earlier on the side of free speech so how long was the sedition act of 1798 in effect and why was it repealed that's a great question the federalists who enacted it were very cagey because they passed it to sunset at the very start of 1801, so a couple of years later. And that just happened to coincide with the end of John Adams's term as president. And the Federalists, so they had it set up so that 
presumably if they were all returned to power, they could re-up the Sedition Act. And if things went the other way, the law would no, <laughs> no longer exist. In the short term, this law was a convenient way for Federalists like Adams and Hamilton to silence their critics. But in the long term, it backfired in a big way. It violated the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, and everybody knew it. The next four elections would go to the Republicans. It was a great sort of moment in American history with the Sedition Act because I tend to think that Americans are often slow to act to injustices, but I think that ultimately, as a country, we have a history of waking up to injustices, whether they are international or domestic. We're not a perfect country by any stretch, but I do think that when we are awoken, we tend to take the right steps a lot of times. And in this case, the Sedition Act was passed. A lot of people didn't give it much thought, but when people started to see journalists and other Americans being rounded up and tried and convicted and put in jail for using the rights that these unalienable rights that have been declared so in the Bill of Rights, the country woke up and turned against the Federalists and mountains of petitions began flooding into the Capitol and Instead of creating villains, the Federalists wound up creating martyrs and heroes out of everyone they prosecuted. Then the public rallied around the people who had been prosecuted. And ultimately, John Adams lost the next election in a landslide to Thomas Jefferson. The Federalists lost power in Congress. And it really was, I think, a signature moment in the downfall of the Federalist Party. This moment in American history was the first great test of our commitment to freedom of speech as a country. Do you believe that it had been the ultimate test of the commitment to free speech in American history? We tend to think or hope that we can get through these issues a great test of whether we're going to live up to the Bill of Rights or another great test. And we tend to think that we can pass that test and then that issue has been solved and we can move on. But of course, what happens is you get new generations facing similar problems and we have to refight these things during World War I, there was a new Sedition Act passed and people who spoke up against the draft or against the war were thrown in jail. These were some socialists who gave, gave speeches and wound up being thrown in jail. You've had over and over again throughout our history, we've had tests of free speech. And of course, then we had the great court cases, the Supreme Court cases of the 20th century that established uh, standards like imminent harm. And so there are limits to free speech but established some pretty clear ones that have preserved a remarkable degree of free speech into our own age. But as long as we are a country that values free speech, we are going to have to be protecting that and being tested over and over again. There is no ultimate test for free speech. As a historian, what would you say to people who say they're unconcerned with the issue of free speech or who might even be opposed to it? I think that people who profess themselves to be unconcerned about free speech are people who are currently not having their free speech rights infringed upon. People who have not been forcibly shut down for voicing their opinions or who feel themselves generally aligned with whoever happens to be 
in control. The problem with putting the government in control of speech and giving the government greater control over speech is that you don't achieve the objective of eliminating bad, dangerous opinions and screwballs. What happens is you get rid of those views that don't happen to jibe with the views of whoever's in power. Let's go back to the Sedition Act of 1798. The people on the Republican side were saying horrible things about the Federalists. The Federalists were saying equally horrible things about the Republicans, but the end result, the Federalists were in power and they passed the Sedition Act and the result was that everybody who got prosecuted was a Republican. And nobody who got prosecuted was a Federalist. Even though you had people on both sides going to the same degree of viciousness with what they were saying and writing. When you begin to pass laws and control, I think you do it with the idea that you're going to eliminate misinformation or you're going to eliminate nasty thoughts so that everybody can will have a, a, a garden without weeds is one of the metaphors that you hear. But what really happens is you wind up converting free speech from a right into a privilege. And it's a privilege enjoyed by those who are aligned with or approved of by whoever's in power. I think people from a point of temporary safety may either not care or even support abridgments of free speech of people that they hate and think are dangerous. And they think it'll be great to get rid of those people. But what happens, it's short-sighted because the power seats change and before you know it, it's your rights on the chopping block. Which is exactly why we have the Bill of Rights. The reason we have the Bill of Rights, the reason we have free speech is because it's my right and your right, your unalienable right as a human being to have your say and not be told by a government that you can't express your opinion. So I think it goes beyond whether we have a functioning democracy. But having said that, I think it's absolutely essential and that people have the right to say what they want. And I think the danger in eliminating voices that are perceived to be wrongheaded or misinformation or dangerous, the problem with that is that that you wind up narrowing free speech and you say we have free speech but only within a certain corridor of accepted opinions and that it's impossible to have a free flow of debate under those circumstances what you have is a debate under officially approved conditions i think when you decide that there's one opinion to have on a specific idea or scientific area or issue and you decide that that matter's settled, there are no other opinions outside this certain corridor of opinions, you think you do society a great harm. Returning to your book and the historical episodes at the center of the conversation, do you have any closing thoughts that you'd like to leave us with? What has always struck me, two things about the experience of writing about the Sedition Act of 1798. Now, this was a long time ago. But the two things I've noticed is that when I talk to people about my book, and I talk to left-wing people and right-wing people, they all say, oh, this is a time for it. And they all mean very different things. Everybody says that it believes that the threats to free speech come from the other side, that there's that these 
dangerous forces on the left want to shut me up because I'm on the right. Or uh, if you're on the left, you say those dangerous forces on the right want to shut me up because I'm on the left. And everybody's equally convinced of that. And what I think is much more helpful is if we recognize that often the dangers come from your own side. The Federalists in 1798 believed they were saving the country. John Adams didn't turn into a monster. He believed that he needed to shut these people down who were threatening him and saying these awful things. And he didn't think that he was abridging freedom by shutting them down. He thought, let's get rid of these guys and we can get back to healthy speech. So I think that's the first thing is that the threats come from ourselves and our own party, not necessarily from the people, because we can all recognize when our own rights are being abridged. We can't necessarily recognize when we're abridging somebody else's rights. The other major lesson I think that I took away was not how different 1798 was from our own era, but how similar. They were, we like to think, what did that have to do with us? They didn't have the internet. They didn't have jet travel. They weren't on smartphones all the time. They were fighting over the same things. They were fighting over big government versus small government. They were fighting over immigration. They were fighting over taxes. They were fighting over a lot of the same things. The lesson we can draw from that is that the battle's never going to end. It's something that we're going to keep fighting over forever, as long as we're a republic. And, and I think we need to find ways to do it peacefully rather than violently. And I close my book sort of saying that in the end, the measure of greatness of any generation isn't the laws that it passed to shut down this or that dangerous voice or to get through a temporary crisis. To me, the measure of greatness of any generation is the wisdom that it shows in looking beyond the moment and handing down liberty intact to the next generation. Don't miss our live shows exclusively in the stereo app three times each week. Come join us. I'd like to hear from you. Our last stereo session went something like this. So I'm not going to pin you down and make you choose one, but give me a couple of places internationally that you did that stand out to you, whether because the site that you were at was uh, caught you off guard or just it was way more fun than you thought it would be or get more activity than you thought it would be. What are a couple, just throw me a couple of places out there that you really enjoyed more than the others. Lep Castle, which was actually still for the old Ghost Hunter show. It was kind of the unofficial pilot and spinoff and, um, for GHI. We went over to Ireland and went to Lep Castle. And that's where I had pretty much for, for television purposes, my biggest experience where something had lifted me up and knocked me back onto the ground in the chapel. So to have had that happen, that never had anything like that before or since. That will always be one that I remember. My favorite place that we've ever visited overseas uh, in terms of paranormal activity would be uh, the Clark Air Base that we did in the Philippines. This is a place that was an outpost for our uh, our soldiers uh, during uh, the Vietnam War. And uh, the only place I've ever been, both on camera or off camera for investigations, where everything that um, the client said was going to happen actually happened. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. 
But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.